Today's episode is sponsored by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your real credit card number. Instead, you create virtual credit card numbers which are linked to your bank account that you can then use anywhere you shop. You can create as many virtual cards as you want, and you have unparalleled control over the activity and limits of each one. Then, when companies get hacked and people's information is stolen, you haven't lost anything because they never had your real number to begin with. You can find out more, get 100% free and unlimited access, and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com best, and you can find that link in the show notes. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the recent teachers' union strike in the Los Angeles school district and understand why teachers are at the forefront of a resurgent progressive labor movement. Clips today come from Now This, Jacobin Radio, Belabored, The Dig, Past Present, Start Making Sense, and The Michael Brooks Show. is a strike to save public education. (laughs) This strike is a strike to make sure that the overwhelmingly black and brown children in lower income neighborhoods aren't presented with further inequity within education. This district is being ran by an investment banker who tries to make the rich schools richer and the poor schools more poor. So being that this strike is about saving public education and the educational opportunities for the most valuable youth in our community, this attack is not only aimed at teachers. This attack is an attack on students. It's an attack on parents. It's an attack on the entire community. Over 80% of the public supports this strike because they know because they know the public knows that it is unacceptable not to have full-time nurses it is unacceptable to have class sizes of 47 it is unacceptable to have teachers come in and then leave because the conditions are too hard and the pay isn't enough Uh, it is unacceptable to have charter schools pop up on every corner and drain money and resources from our neighborhood public schools. The public supports this fight. It is absurd for me to accept that a student would be forced to sit on the floor of their chemistry class as I was for an entire year or have to drop AP psychology because there were more students in the class than there were desks. Smaller class size will increase the student to teacher ratio. We were 48th in the country. More nurses and counselors will create a nurturing learning environment. Holding charter schools accountable will reduce the drain on public resources. And the community-centered schools will create strong bonds between schools and their surrounding neighborhoods. It has been my privilege to attend LAUSD public schools for the past 13 years. The great teachers I've had helped shape me into the person I am today. I will encourage, 
When I graduate this year, I want to know that every child in Los Angeles has an even better opportunity than I had. Listen, our kids need people to talk to on campus. They need people to go to when there are things going on in their lives that won't allow them to function and concentrate in their classrooms. That's what we're here for. It's, if you think that all we do is limited to pencils and papers and, and curriculum, you're missing the whole point. We are here for the students and whatever they need. What, what the world is watching is a struggle over what these folks have talked about, which is something that is basic to human beings, which is education and being able to come to schools that actually work for the whole child, okay? We're going to talk about the centrality of opposition to charter growth, which has been the kind of um, – it's been the focus of this strike and of the protest, as, as well as all of the other demands that all amount to what's going on in the attack on public education. And given the difference between, you know, the Los Angeles strike and the strikes in the red states, and that is that this time – the uh, strikers are not striking against a Republican-controlled um, legislature. This time it puts the Democrats in, a, in an uncomfortable position because the Democratic Party is often or has long straddled an awkward political balancing act between the charter school and the labor movements, both of which have funded Democratic candidates. And the Democrats have paid lip service to the labor movement, but in fact, uh, in official educational policy, have been backing the charters. And so now we've got a situation where Democratic lawmakers, both national and um, state and local, have been... Um, Focused on the teachers, mostly again supporting them, but have a large number of them have been quiet on this one issue about charter school growth. Now, with all of that, welcome to Jacobin Radio, Eric Blanc. Great, thanks, Susie. It's great to be on. Thank you. And I just wanted to say that, you know, because there's been this bipartisan consensus nationally on education reform, and what we saw before under George W. Bush was standardized testing and accountability, the leave no child behind, but also a push for charter schools, and then austerity, which increased with the 2007-8 crisis under the Obama administration. And what, you know, Bush's policy had done was to punish under performing schools, but it was championed in different ways by the Democrats. And from there, it went, I, I guess I could, you could say, from holding teachers and schools accountable through testing to the Obama administration policy under Arne Duncan of just outright school closing and pushing charters. So maybe we could begin there, and you could talk a little bit about what the program is and how it came to be a core feature of the Democratic Party's educational reform. Right. So I think the the first thing to say is that, as you mentioned, the significance of the Los Angeles strike is that it puts all of the contradictions of the Democratic Party uh, in full display in a way that maybe some people on the left understood, but I don't think was broadly uh, seen by the public and uh, not even a lot of labor militants. And so what Los Angeles has put at the fore is that exactly the same policies uh, of privatization and charters uh, have been imposed in deep blue states like California. And some people find that surprising, but as you mentioned, this actually goes way back. So uh, really the charters um, were hegemonic. Uh, it's not just that they were straddling, but actually the, the Democratic Party leadership, um, going back actually to Clinton, and this predates Obama, 
Um, but really, really, when you have the Obama administration and with Arne Duncan in particular, uh, really pushing very far on the question of charters in particular. And so in a place like California, um, which has been long controlled by the Democrats, the Los Angeles school system, for instance, over the last 10 years, has seen a 287% increase in charters. Now, this is under Democratic mayors. Um, and it's, so it's significant that the same charter associations um, are funding both Democrats and Republicans. And sometimes, in fact, it's Republican foundations, things like um, the Walton family, who are the founders of uh, Walmart, or the Fishers, who are the founders of Gap, who normally actually are basically Republicans, but on the question of charters, they're giving huge amounts of dollars. We're talking tens of millions of dollars, sometimes billions on national scale, in the, the example of the Waltons, to the Democratic Party. And so, you know, the old uh, phrase that the piper pays, the, whoever pays the piper chooses the tune, is very much the case in the Democratic Party. And so what you see now in Los Angeles, though, is that the depth of opposition to these policies has made it a very uh, tenuous position for the Democratic leadership to try to straddle. Um, and I think it's an open question to see whether what way they're going to fall. It's not exactly clear. And part of the context for this, which is worth underlining, is that it's not just that there's these mass strikes, but to a certain extent, the tide turning against charters and privatization and sort of education reform is because at this point it's associated in large part with Trump and Betsy DeVos. So insofar as the, that's the image that people have of these policies, it's made it much harder, I think, for the Democratic Party as a whole to embrace them in the same way that they've done when they themselves were in power. Talk about the, the sort of values that came out of the building that you've done both on the ground here and nationally. From the get-go, when we were doing caucus work back in the 90s, and then a lot of my work in the, the early 2000s was around this Coalition for Educational Justice, a, a driving value has been that work with parents and community has to be central to the work that we do as teachers, as community organizers, and as people trying to build a strong teachers' union. Um, so that's been a, a real fundamental thing. Yeah. A second real fundamental thing has been like the centrality of um, racial justice, particularly in a place like L.A., where between 85 and 90 percent of the kids are kids of color. A, a third real driving component has been that we've got to do real systematic organizing, yeah. that, that we, you know, just having a small group of people go in and negotiate contracts when others don't really know what's going on. Yeah. We can't, can't really have that. And the idea of doing it actually systematically right. and assessing where we are in terms of our reach within the members and what we're hearing from members and all that. Yeah. So those, I think, are, are have been real fundamental things. The, the, I guess the two others I would add are leadership development being a huge component that, you know, particularly in a, in a profession that's dominated by women, mm -hmm. making sure that we're intentionally seeking out opportunities for classroom teachers to develop their leadership in community organizing, um, union organizing, et cetera. And then the, the last one I would just throw out there is that 
we we have always felt that we've got to build a union that isn't afraid to strike. Yeah. And of course, the district right now in these very tense moments is mischaracterizing that yeah. as like that we've just been on a pell-mell drive towards wanting to strike. But we have been very clear for five years that, hey, we think in the labor movement, if you have to, you should be able to strike. Yeah. Um, so I think those are some of the, have been some of the guiding things. What do you think people have missed in writing about this? I mean, I guess the caucus thing is often missed, that this stuff doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. It comes out of often like a couple of decades of like sort of quiet work that's not like glorious meetings with, you know, <laughs> upper echelon people. It's like regular conversations with teachers yeah. and, you know, and this stuff all happens on a shoestring, right? Yeah. Like you're <laughs> yeah. you're raising yeah. your own raising your own money to, to build a caucus. So I think that's missed. I think the other thing that is uh, is missed in just like a strike buildup yeah. organizationally is the care and intention that it takes to build systems and structures just within the union. Yeah. Like all the stuff that we're able to do right now when we have to do it. Yeah of like pushing information out to members, yeah. getting immediate responses from members about like how people are feeling, mm -hmm. pushing stuff out to parents, getting immediate feedback from parents. It's because of years of like setting down systems and structures. So I think those are two things that are yeah. pretty often missed. Yeah. The other thing that yeah. I think is, is missed is, um, and, and we don't, I mean, we're going to find out two weeks from now. Yeah how far we got on all this. Yeah. But this whole bargaining for the common good mm -hmm. piece yeah. uh, where we have attempted to inject what we know are non-mandatory subjects of bargaining right. into the process, yeah. whether it be stopping the so-called random searches of students, mm -hmm. you know, that are very racialized and, yeah. and disrupt instructional time, et cetera, whether it's uh, this idea of a charter cap Mm -hmm. Which we know we can't like negotiate with LUSD, but it's a, we see it as fundamental to the future of public education in LA, and so have attached it as a policy question to the bargaining. Yeah. This idea of um, the district establishing an immigrant defense fund mm -hmm. for LUSD families to be able to tap into if they're facing Trump yeah. stuff. So I think that's another thing that's that's missed. What's that meant sort of internally in terms of when you took power in the union, reallocating where union resources were going? So we campaigned in 2014 very specifically on, look, we need an organization that has an organizing director because UTLA forever didn't have an organizing director and department. Number two, we need an organization that has a political director and an actual political department. Third, we need a staffed-up parent community division. Fourth, we need an actual research department. UTLA's never had a research department. So we campaigned on all of this, and and people liked the idea. I mean, members were like, hey, that makes sense. So as soon as we came in, I mean, we were at a place where we our, our dues were, were extraordinarily low. Yeah. The affiliates, I mean, NEA, AFT, CFT, and CTA, to their to their credit and yeah. to our benefit, I mean, they helped us yeah. in in that first year, basically, because we went to them as soon as we got elected and said, we're going to need your help. Yeah. 
hiring an organizing director, hiring community organizers. They helped. It gave us an opportunity to to uh, take an all-member vote out to increase uh, dues. We were successful with that. The the members voted 82% to 18 to increase dues. So it's been pretty substantial in terms of like internal organizational shifts. movement has really two faces. One face is the fact that because they have good funding, private funding in addition to public funding, their class sizes are often smaller than traditional public schools, and they often have, they have more counselors, they do a lot of things that the public schools used to do before we were being starved. So there are the people who teach in them and the people who try to get them up and running, and I would say for the most part, I would say that these are all people who care about kids and want things to go well. Mm. But the people behind this, the people who are forcing up the legislation in Sacramento, the people who lied about what Proposition 39 was about, those people are the literally billionaire privatizers that after New Orleans and Katrina decided that we don't need public schools anymore. Mm. And they have put in literally tens of millions of dollars in elections around the country so that, for example, Marshall Tuck, a guy who knows nothing about public education, ran for superintendent in public instruction in his general election. That's not the primary. In the general election, the charter people spent $40 million dollars now, when was the last time anybody spent $40 million on a superintendent of public instruction? The mm. answer is never. Right. In fact, <clears throat> if you've got people who have spent 5 or $10 million, even in a state as big as California, you would say, wow, that's a pretty expensive race for superintendent of public instruction. Why did they want Marshall Tuck? Because Marshall Tuck does not support public education. He supports privatizing using charters. Why do they care about that? Because they don't like having to worry about who gets elected to school boards. You see, charters pick their own people to be on the board. You can't run for the board. You can't recall them from the board if they're doing a lousy job. And in fact, in some cases, if they're in a what they call a charter management organization, they're not even required to hold public meetings. So you can't even go listen to what they're doing, even though you don't get to vote for them and even though you couldn't kick them out of office. Now, why, people say, if they're getting public money, how are they making profit? Well, some some of the charter folks in, in these in non so-called nonprofit organizations are calling themselves superintendents of schools, and uh, there's a superintendent uh, over a, a charter group of schools that has maybe between all of them about 5,000 students. That superintendent is getting a salary of $313,000 a year. Mm. In addition to which, charter schools can rent their space from a member of their board. 
or the niece or the brother of the member of the board. The food services can be provided by a relative, a friend, a good friend. Uh, they, they have been requiring parents to do the lunch duty so that they don't have to pay classified people to cook and serve food. So what they do is basically is to say that they can have smaller classes so you all come here. But the point of it is to get rid of classified employees. The point of it is to be involved in what I would call nepotism in terms of who they hire to do the various tasks and what kind of funding they get to spend on the vendors that are coming to their schools, whether it's for books or whether it's for anything else. So that's the problem. Now, what the goal is... That's and, the key. And yeah. it actually, it came out because Broad's leaked document leaked. He mm-hmm. wanted by 2025, I think it is, for 50% of the children in the district to be in charter schools. And he said that they were willing to put up about $450 million to uh. make that happen. So now, how can they make that happen? Well, one of the ways they do that is by electing people to the school board of Los Angeles who are indebted to them. So in the last big election for school board, Bennett Kaiser, an outstanding board member, and Steve Zimmer, an outstanding board member, were both defeated in a $13.5 million campaign. Can you imagine spending $13.5 million on a school board election? Mm. Why would people spend that kind of money? And who's the money coming from? It's coming from Walmart, the Walton family. It's coming from... Eli Broad, it's coming from the guy from Netflix. He puts in millions of dollars every year to the charter stuff. It's coming from people whose names we don't know because they don't live in California, but they can send what we call dark money for independent expenditures to run against people like me. And so basically what you have is is you have a cabal of wealthy people don't want to pay taxes anymore don't want to worry about having school board members they can't control and do want to have a privatized system whereas frankly if not everybody gets educated it's not really their problem Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Since 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they have revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Everett founded the company, naming it after her daughter, because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madisonreed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madisonreed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. I was reading a piece by socialist feminist Tiffy Bhattacharya, who I hope to have on soon, and she had a piece on the strike where she wrote, quote, struggles in the care or social reproduction sector are especially explosive today. 
As neoliberalism demands more hours of waged work per household and less support for social provisioning, it puts tremendous pressure on families and particularly on women in those families. Struggles over social reproduction and care have thus acquired renewed meaning in the neoliberal era. My question is, what does the fact that it is teachers, workers at the core of the social reproductive economy, who are leading, that it is them who are leading the strike wave, what does that tell us about the nature of contemporary capitalism and how to struggle against it? I think there are so many layers to that, right? So one of the things, just a basic, basic function of teachers and why teachers have been beat up in the press for the last however long is that teachers have been women. Teachers have been women in this country since the beginning of public schools, largely because they were presumed to be cheap because women were supposed to be married to men who would do the real earning of a wage, right? Women are presumed to be naturally more caring and more dedicated to the well-being of children. And so therefore they would work for less money, they'd be cheap, and they'd be a nice docile workforce. I would like to introduce anybody who thought that to some of the LA teachers that I've met. But so that's kind of a, a number one bottom level thing that's happening here. And these teachers in particular, and we haven't talked that much about the demographics of this district. I've talked oh, yeah. more about the geography of it. Yeah. But this is this is an overwhelmingly poor and non-white school district, right? So LA, everybody thinks of, you know, sort of actors and Hollywood and all of this money. And there's a ton of rich people here and there's a ton of rich white people here, but they, those are not the kids going to LA public schools. The kids who are going to LA public schools are something like 80% qualified for free and reduced price lunch. And as a quick aside, a lot of those people started, stopped sending their kids to public schools decades ago to resist integration. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Alex Caputo Pro will point out that the, you know, the defunding of public ed started at about the same time that the um, percentage of kids of color in public schools started going up. So now we're talking about a district that has, you know, the, the number one, the biggest proportion of non-white students are um, Central and South American. But that you've also got immigrant kids from all over the place. I'm talking to teachers who have five, six, seven, eight languages spoken at their school. One who, you know, the biggest... Um, proportion of immigrants speak Farsi, you know, it just depends on which part of town you're in. There are so many different deep ethnic communities in LA. You mean the, the first category of Central and South American, uh, you meant to include Mexican in that or? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. So we're talking about a district that is overwhelmingly low income, overwhelmingly, um, you know, tons of language learners and overwhelmingly non-white. That is who goes to these schools. Um, these are working class black and brown kids. We should really emphasize that every single time and the union does. And that is a big reason why it is just fine to attack them and shove them into classes with 50 students in them. Because, you know, these are the people we don't care about. This is, you know, where we talk about the school to prison pipeline and things like that. Um, we talk about deportation. We talk about all of that. That's who is being defunded. That's who people don't really care about. When, you know, the slogan that started in Chicago that we now hear everywhere, which is the teacher's working conditions are our students' learning conditions. A lot of people just straight don't care about the learning conditions of poor black and brown kids. And that's just a reality. And so when you start to strip back the public sector that serves those people first, this is what happened with welfare reform. If we're going to talk about, you know, things that started in California, Ronald Reagan 
and welfare reform. Um, you are able to attack welfare because welfare aid to families with dependent children was a program that was seen wrongly. By the way, it was always mostly white mm-hmm. women who used it, but it was seen as a program that was helping black women and their children. And so we have a long history of starting the gutting of the social welfare state with black and brown women and their kids. And that is what's happening here again. And so you look at that and you you have to, you know, I, I want to talk about, you know, like Compahee River Collective Statement, right? If we, if black women, their demands are met, if they are taken care of, then everybody else will be taken care of on all the way up. And that's one part of the puzzle. And a quick aside, the flip side of that is true. Looking at the history of the rise of mass incarceration, obviously, black people in particular have been the most spectacularly and excessively and disproportionately punished by the rise of mass incarceration. But that racist, spectacular punishment of black people has also legitimated a system of mass incarceration that also chews up plenty of white people. Exactly. Exactly. So there are plenty of kids who are not black and brown in these schools. Um, and the, you know, there are plenty of people who might be more likely to send their kids to public schools if they knew that their kid wouldn't be in a classroom full of 50 people, some of whom have to stand. The public sector gets hollowed out that way and then it screws over everybody. So we, we know this, right? We know this is how this works. We know that where the wedge of these things always comes in. We know how the, the charter schools, again, will come in and say, well, we want to make things better for these black and brown children who aren't being served well by these schools. But actually what they do is they have no programs for English language learners. They have no special ed programs. So all of the kids who need special education are pushed back into the public school where they don't have enough counselors and they don't have enough special ed teachers and they don't have enough regular teachers. Um, and then they declare the public schools to be a failure and thus in need of private sector competition. How convenient. Right. The vicious cycle of it is just ongoing. And so when we think about the sort of crisis of social reproduction that people talk about a lot these days, we should understand this in, I mean, A, right, it affects all of us, but these are the ways that the, the working class is divided broken up, turned against itself, and then systematically, you know, the the things that we would think of as like the social wage, right? The stuff that everybody gets as virtue of being in America. I don't want to say being an American because I'm talking about a lot of immigrant people here who do not and are not considered American, whatever, you know, is going on in this stupid country. Um, (laughs) Those things are going away. And they're going away because they were successfully painted as handouts to undeserving black and brown people rather than a social wage, a social benefit for everybody. And so the teachers have done a very, very good job in the last several years of turning that around and saying public education should be a public good. The school, though, should be something more than just a place that educates. It should be a place that cares. It should be a place where there's a nurse. It should be a place where there's a counselor. It should be a place where the parents can feel comfortable coming in. It should be a place that serves the entire community. And that is, again, I, I said this before and I'm, I'm you know, saying it again, it's a, a demand for the revival of the entire idea of public space and public good. That is the biggest challenge out there that anybody is raising to the entire idea of sort of their, you know, there is no alternative. Margaret Thatcher, there is no such thing as society. That kind of argument, right? Margaret Thatcher famously said, there's no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families. 
And the idea behind that, you just had Melinda Cooper on, is that individuals and families are just responsible for their own sin. That is the logic of charter schools. The logic of charter schools is I'm going to get my kid into a good school and my kid will do better. And I don't care about everybody else that gets left behind at their, you know, what would have been their community public school because I need my kid to do better. And that's like, that's logical, right? If you have a kid I don't, but I know people who do. <laughs> if you have a kid, you want the best for your kid. You want your kid in the best school. I don't know any leftist in New York City who has a kid who wants their kid to just go to any crappy school. They are all trying to get their kid into the best school that school choice can get them, right? This is, it is logical. It's that a is systemic how the world problem. Works because, right. But the problem there is like, right, when everybody's just getting theirs and nobody said for, you know, decades and decades, we've got to fight for the entire thing. Then the entire thing is just getting worse and worse. And now, again, you've got 45, 50 kids in a classroom. And so this is when we get to the point where the teachers unions are saying, wait, 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 we've got to fight for it all. not the parent making a decision to put their kid in a charter school that's the problem. That is not a problem. It's not a problem because that parent is like every other parent when they make that decision, having decided that that might be the best place for their kid to go to school. I take no exception to that. However, the system is rigged. So let's talk about a school that has 350 kids. Okay, it pays for gas, it pays for electricity, it it pays for a plant manager to keep the school clean and pays for a custodial staff to make sure that the bathrooms are clean and the classrooms are clean. It pays for cafeteria workers and food for the students. And let's say 50 students leave, okay? That leaves us 300 instead of 350. You lose 100% of the money but you don't lose 100% of the fixed costs. That's the rigging of it in Sacramento. That's what the charter people wanted. They wanted every child that comes to them not only to give them more money, but to make sure that the schools in L.A. Unified or anywhere else in the state, like Oakland and Inglewood, who are being decimated by charters, that they cannot afford to keep up just the fixed costs on their schools because they lose 100% of the money, whereas the fixed cost may be 15 or 20% of the money. So we need the legislature to say it's time to look at charter legislation. There may have been unintended consequences. The conspiracy theorists among us think that they were intended, but it really (laughs) doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it was intended or unintended. The fact of the matter is, is that there is no dispute that it is undermining the financial support for 80% of the students in L.A. Unified. So I've asked Speaker Anthony Rendon if he would appoint a select committee to take a look at the positives and the negatives of 26 years of charter school legislation. And he has committed to doing so. I'm going to ask Tony Atkins, who's the Speaker Pro Tem of the Senate, to do the same. And she's already endorsed me, so we will have more conversations about this. But it is time to say that there are some, if you want to have charter schools, have them. 
but don't have them in a rigged system. And let me tell you other ways that it's rigged, okay? Yeah. We have two charter schools in Los Angeles that have been chartered by Victorville. Victorville, okay? <laughs> yes. You can charter a school in anybody else's district under current law from wow. anywhere in the state. That's got to stop. Yeah. Victorville is not going to make sure that the two charters that they did are held accountable. They don't even come to Los Angeles from Victorville. So we've got to say charters can only be chartered by school districts. Then we have Crenshaw High School, built for 3,000 students, has 800 kids in it now, and about six or seven charter high schools that have been permitted to surround it. None of those charter high schools has a full campus either because now they're all competing for the same students, and the result is is that no high school student in the Crenshaw area has a school that they can go to that offers a complete program of high school offering courses. This should not be permitted. Districts should be the only ones who decide where charter schools once chartered can go. The state needs to put together a fund that says for school districts their fixed costs will be paid for by the state when they lose students. Not the student cost that pays for a a teacher, but for all of those costs that remain, whether or not there are 300 or 350 students on that campus. So there are fixes to this that would make the two systems actually cooperative and not be a focus of trying to privatize and public education. This will be a hard sell because the charter folks that are the billionaire privatizers have spent literally tens of millions of dollars on Democrats in our state legislature to the extent that we have at the Assembly Education Committee, which I chaired for the four of the six years I was there, at that committee you have a hard time getting a Democrat to serve on Assembly Ed because they don't want to alienate the people who keep sending them campaign contributions. So this is a mess, but it is a mess that I think the teachers and the counselors and the nurses and the psychologists that are on strike are beginning to help the public and therefore I hope the legislators to understand that this is not just whether or not a charter school is better than a public school. It's that we don't have accountability for charter schools. We don't have transparency for charter schools. They do not have to submit their budgets to the county office of education. And as a result of that, we have the celerity woman, CEO of her charter schools, who just stole two more than $2 million from her kids for personal uh, high-end purchases for herself and her family. We have a on the first day of school and a elementary school charter school in Eagle Rock that closed because there was no money for that school, and no one knew that until the first day of school because they did not have to submit their budget to the county office of education. So there are fixes, right? Well, Jackie Goldberg, this is all really interesting. I want to follow up on one point though that you made about the sort of motivation behind this, which is, you know, anti-democratic at its core. But right now, and we'll get back to your campaign in a minute, but right now it seems that the wind is at your back. This strike, even the statements that have been made by Newsom and Garcetti, that's our governor and mayor of Los Angeles, who, you know, at least seem to support somewhat a moratorium on further charterization 
position for the present. And plus the fact that if you win on the school board will help and then Tony Thurmond as well. How do you see the relationship of forces now for doing this? And and also just one other thing on this anti-democratic nature. What about also fighting to unionize charter school teachers? Actually, that's already going on. Yeah. And there are a growing number of charter school teachers who are in unions, and the Alliance charter school teachers went on strike two days ago. Right. So there are charter school teachers on strike right now in L.A. Unified. So I think that the anti-democratic part about this is, is that, first of all, as the NAACP has said, and it's calling for a nationwide moratorium on charter school additions for now, has said it had an effect of resegregating schools, in some cases by class, but in most cases by class and race. And so what you have is white flight, in essence, leaving schools that were not perhaps completely integrated, but somewhat integrated, and now going to schools that are majority white, and that has caused some additional segregation within L.A. Unified. But in addition to which, charter schools don't all keep all of the students that they take. By law, they have to take everybody in that applies, and if there are too many applications, it has to be a lottery. But some of them have decided that if you're in the chartering organization, your kids get to go in first. So that undermines that. In addition to which, there is a widespread practice, though not universal, among charter schools of what they call counseling children out. Wow. And these are children who may have special ed needs that they don't want to meet, so they don't hire a special ed teacher. They call the parent and they say, gee, your child has special ed needs. That public school across the street has a special ed program. I think it might be better for you to to have your child there. And then at some time around March, February or March, just before the testing cycle begins for state tests, You get a lot of schools counseling out children who are not achieving well in school, saying to their parents, and I've actually personally witnessed this, Mm -hmm. they say to the parents, we're not meeting your child's needs. (laughs) I think they would be happier at school X or school Y, which is, of course, a public school. Then the child leaves because they... Can't the, uh, the, and, and by the way, they sa- make it sound like it's a choice, but it really isn't. They say that we're not meeting your child's le- needs, and you have two weeks to find another place for him, and we'll help you do that, or another place for her, and we'll help you do that. So what they do is they counsel these kids out. These kids then go take their state-mandated achievement tests at a school they did not attend for the year, Uh, And their scores are included in the school that takes them in because, you see, unlike charter schools, LAUSD schools accept every kid who walks in the door, period. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist. You may think you don't have time to read a book, but Blinkist is here to prove you wrong. Just as I curate and distill the most important points about political issues, Blinkist does that for thousands of nonfiction books, condensing them down into just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to as audiobooks. Blinkist is made for busy people who want to get the main points out of books quickly. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library, including self-help, business, health, history, and of course, 
politics. Just like everyone else, my reading list is longer than I'll ever have time for, so I use Blinkist to speed through books I know I'm not going to get to, but I also use it to listen to blinks of books that I really do plan to read, just to help confirm that they're going to be worth my time. A couple of books by people who've been featured in interviews on the show include Rebecca Traster's Good and Mad, explaining the many reasons for feminist anger, and Johan Hari's Lost Connections, which helps explain that depression isn't just about brain chemistry. If you want to check out Blinkist for yourself, for a limited time, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. And of course, you can cancel anytime. Blinkist.com slash best. So education and schools and school districts and teachers unions, that's all an important part of this story. But if we take the lens back, I think something that you said at the very beginning, Natalia, was so interesting, which is the return of the strike. And in many ways, the return of unions. I mean, one of the stories that we tell in sort of the big labor history picture of the 20th century is that union membership peaks in like 1955 and then is in steady decline and then dramatic decline by the 1970s. But when you look at public unions, public service unions or public employee unions, it's a very different picture. It goes from 400,000 members in 1955. And then by the 70s, you have 4 million members. And part of that is down to changes in the law. In um, During his administration, John Kennedy allows for there to be unionizing in by public sector employees. And so that opens the floodgates to this kind of public sector union. But that ultimately changes the face of unionism in America. It's much more women-led um, and it's much more centrally located now, especially the private employee unions have largely disappeared in some ways, um, that public sector unions are really the, the driver of unionism in the United States. And I think these teachers unions and the strikes that they've had show that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, that historical arc that you're sketching there, Nikki, is really important here. One of the things that's has really struck me in both the um, LA teacher strike, but also in some of the other ones that have happened recently in Oklahoma and Arizona, is there seems to be a much larger public support for these strikes than I would have assumed, given mm-hmm. that history you've sketched out um, and the real decline of the labor movement um, across the late 20th century and early 21st century. But particularly, I think the special politics of uh, children's education in American society mm-hmm. and the ways in which people have certainly, I think many Americans have a different interest in the educational system than they do in, say, the manufacturing sector of the economy. And so the solid base of support for the the strikes that I've seen has actually been a surprise to me. The one that I think makes sense in a Trump moment, and I wonder if that's a critical factor here um, that's shaping the, the politics or the kind of public response to these strikes. So I think that it's wider than that in a way. I mean, there's been, especially since 2010, such a broad-based attack on unionism in the United States. And that has triggered a really wide-ranging discussion about why unions are so important and so necessary. And I think that's actually built up some public support for unions more generally. 
I don't know, Natalia, what do you think about the specifics of it? Um, well, yeah, I, I agree with both of you to be kind of, you know, middle of the road about it. Um, but I also think Neil is onto something and that, you know, one of the big attacks on teachers unions has positioned teachers, um, unionized teachers as kind of lazy parasites who are just looking mm-hmm. to get as much time off as possible and to not work and they get out at 3 p.m. and they're just living off the fat of the public coffers to mix metaphors. Um, um, but if you look at the demand, at the expense of children, right? Exactly at the expense of children, right? All they care about is their vacation days, etc. If you look at the demands that were in play in the LA negotiations, and I haven't seen the official documents, but these are the ones being reported on, except for a request for a salary raise, everything else was unquestionably about in- improving the student mm-hmm. experience. This was about getting nurses in schools where there's no full-time nurse, getting uh, librarians in schools, cutting class size down from like an atrocious 42 kids in a high school class to like 39. So all of those, those are not like more vacation days, more coffee breaks. They're not even like asking for, um, you know, more professional development opportunities, which could be construed in a, you know, deep deeply anti-teacher society, I would say, as sort of selfish. These are all very much about kids' experiences. And so to that point, I think, Neil, it's an easier sell in the public image to have this pull at the heartstrings of people of a society which at least pretends to care about children's education. I contrast that if any of you have not seen the movie The Lottery, which came out probably now like a decade ago, which is a very, it's like Mm -hmm. pro-charter school propaganda about the success charter network, which is definitely the biggest one in New York City. It definitely has national standing too. Eva Moskowitz is the head of it. And it is like an anti-union propaganda movie. So you should check that out and maybe contrast it with what it sounds like all of us are describing as some rising sympathies towards teachers' unions today. So we probably need to move on now, but I I didn't want to end this without also adding the context with your initial comments about 2009 being a low point. I mean, we're talking about right in the middle of the Great Recession when there simply was no leverage for workers to push back for anything because unemployment was so high and they just had no positionality. And now that the economy has, in some ways, recovered, jobless rates are down below 4%, there is a real leverage on the side of workers. And there is the reality that while companies have made so much money in the intervening decade, there hasn't been a commensurate rise in wages. Mm -hmm. And that disconnect has not only provided the leverage, but really the the justification for coming out and pushing back against employers in order to compensate workers more fairly. So I think that that is part of a, a broader shift economically that's empowering unions. The settlement includes higher pay, but also smaller class size, more support staff, more nurses, librarians, and counselors, also more regulation of charter schools, less standardized testing, more green space, more funding from the state, way beyond the usual agreement on pay and benefits. The L.A. School District is the largest employer in the city, So when their workers go on strike, it's a very big deal. 
for the students and their families, of course, for the teachers, of course, but also for the whole city and really for the Democratic Party everywhere in the United States. You were out on the picket lines here last week in L.A. talking to teachers and parents. What did they say the strike was about? I think for teachers and for parents in Los Angeles, the strike was about, you know, it's become almost a a cliche to say the schools our students deserve, thanks to the Chicago teachers making that such a a regular slogan. But it's true. When you talk to parents who are saying, my kid goes to school and there's 40 students in his class, and how is he supposed to get any attention from his teacher when there's 40 students in this class? When I'm talking to students who are getting organized because... They're being stopped and frisked in the schools when you're talking to teachers who have seen their funding cut back. They have a nurse once a week. I talked to a librarian who for a little while had to travel to a different school basically every day of the week because the schools only had a librarian one day a week. When you talk to people about things like this, you get a real picture of what's been done to public education and what this union would like to reverse. And this is a battle not just for better schools in Los Angeles, it's also a battle over the future of the Democratic Party. This whole strike had, you know, it had nothing to do with the Republicans or with Trump. It's really about whether the Democrats, who of course have complete control in Los Angeles and California, will support austerity and the steady erosion of public services, or whether the Democrats will support a more progressive and better funded government. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about that for a minute. Yeah, it was very interesting to me that uh, Cory Booker, who never met a charter school or a hedge fund that he didn't like, was at a charter school event in New Orleans while the Los Angeles teachers were on strike. And this comes after a week where, like, the Democratic Party actually, the DNC put out a statement on the first day of the strike saying they stand with teachers. Kamala Harris put out um, some videos saying she supported the teachers. Bernie Sanders, it's no surprise, sent out an email to his email list saying support the teachers. So there is a movement in that direction, but there are still the Cory Bookers of this world. And, you know, it's important to note that the Los Angeles school board who hired this Wall Streeter, Austin Butner, to run the school district, they are all theoretically Democrats. And so when you look at this and when you look at California in particular, right, your state is the biggest economy in the U.S., the fifth biggest economy in the world if it was its own country, and it is 43rd in per-student funding. That's not a, an accident. It's not a something that just sort of, oops, it happened. These are conscious decisions that were made to defund the schools. It goes back in part to Prop 13, but it also... It's a decision that's been made over and over again in these cities that are run by Democrats. This fits into a much broader history, as you saw in the night cold open, of the Chicago's teachers' strike in 2012. And I think we need to actually put that in the continuum of a resurgent left in modern U.S. politics. There's the Occupy movement, essential, incredibly important, Black Lives Matter, the campaign of Bernie Sanders, and I would also add the Chicago teachers' strike. They were resisting the, of course, particularly obscene authoritarian and anti-people leadership of Chicago mayor and former Obama chief of staff and NAFTA point man, Rahm Emanuel. And they were 
resisting, though, some of the same things that you're seeing resisted in Los Angeles, which has to do with prioritizing charter schools and private education. Superintendent Boitner of Russia shock doctrine fame has called this charter school demands a distracting, quote unquote, shiny ball in response to what the union president, Alex Caputo, called, said, we know that there's going to be a compromise at the end of the day, but the big ticket items like class size, staffing, and limited standardized testing are pretty foundational along with charter school accountability, without a doubt. Our current education secretary, Betsy DeVos, backed by the Mercers, Waltons, and Koch brothers and other malefactors of the country, have supported charter schools, has supported charter schools across the country. Charter schools are disasters for low-income students who see money and investment funneled away from public schools to charter schools and suffer the consequences. Additionally, charter schools and similar programs have sought to find ways to move money out of public schools and into religious schools. In Florida, tax credit credit schemes try to sub, uh, subvert a ban on public financing of religious schools by funneling money as a tax-free write-off through nonprofits to be used for religious schools. In the 2012 protest uh, strikes, which we mentioned before, the first wave was a fight between the teachers and the pro-business forces supported by both Democrats and Republicans. Rahm Emanuel began laying the groundwork to increase the privatization of public education along with teacher layoffs and was supported in this effort by billionaires Bill Gates, the Walton family, and Eli Broad. The Chicago teachers went on strike for similar demands. As I've said before, this battle is ongoing, bipartisan, and, Im- and implicates many frontline Democrats. Public education has been under assault for decades, and democracy in chains, this is one of the areas that Nancy McLean points out as a sort of key resistance point of the American oligarchy to an emergent and broadened American democracy. And of course, if you're on the left, you would criticize stagnant models of education and authoritarian teaching and control and coercion of students. And indeed, in the 70s, there were radical, more sort of anarchist-style writers like Ivan Illich who critiqued schools as bureaucracies and called for greater radicalism. Paulo Freire in Brazil wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed and said that schools, instead of being sort of factories to churn people out as economic performers, needed to equip the poor to overturn the structures of their oppression, essentially, and to own their economies. So the stakes are big across all parts of this debate. But it has been the case that starting with the far right and bleeding through the corporate consensus uh, and into the elites of the Democratic Party, that the very notion of public education has been under assault. And charter schools have been a major sort of battering ram of this fight. They have emerged as a distinctly liberal, neoliberal way of dealing with the crisis. Let's save a few students while we undercut the totality of the quality. In many cases, also charter schools have been exposed for lying about performance, distorting test results, and underserving students who need the most help. President Obama was a, tr- a supporter of charter schools, saying only only our children only get one chance at education, and charter schools demonstrate what is possible when states, communities, teachers, parents, and students work together. Of course, States, students, teachers, and communities working together is literally the point of public education, not private profit-seeking narrow interests undermining the collective enterprise. 
Charter schools have just been a way to privatize public money and take it away from public education. And let's get really specific about this. Hedge funds and banks have invested in charter schools and enjoy significant tax credits. Even more bizarrely, foreign investors who donate a maximum of $500 into charter schools have been allowed to buy immigration visas for themselves or their family members under EBF5 program. The real estate industry also benefits from renting or selling to the public charter schools. Much of the rhetoric around charter schools is anti-labor and essentially blames teachers. That's right. Teachers, people making maybe $60,000 a year or less to educate classrooms full of children in dilapidated schools and undersourced uh, resources, it's their fault that kids are underperforming. Not structural inequality, not lack of investment, not oligarchy. Teachers. Charter schools have also had a disproportionately negative effect on people and students of color. The working class demand for public education is elemental to the radical democratic and socialist project from the beginning. Working people understood the importance of a public education system, which is why the defense and expansion of public schools were a central demand of the American working class movement. Here's a call from the Philadelphia Working Man's Association in the 19th century requesting the realization of public education for all classes. The original element of nepotism is a monopoly of talent, which consigns the multitude to comparative ignorance and secures the balance of knowledge on the side of the rich and the rulers. The means of equal knowledge, the only security for equal liberty, should be rendered by legal obligation, the common property of all classes. The right to an education is a fight over the means to have a prosperous life. Of regardless of where you come from and to, and engage in a democracy across all sectors of society. Public education is an important victory for democracy and the working class, and this is why it's been threatened by the ruling class. From racial segregation schemes to denying the funding to the ruling class is always on the offensive to roll back this important gain and value. But we cannot be satisfied with just defeating the onslaught of the rich. We need a principled and bold stand for fighting for the realization and promise of free, exceptional, and exceptional public education for all. We've just heard clips today, starting with a collection of clips put together by Now This, highlighting the voices of the teachers' protest rallies. Jacobin Radio then spoke with Eric Blanc about the centrality of Democrats on both sides of the dispute over the future of education. Belabored talked with the union leader Alex Caputo-Pearl about the strategies and deep organizing of the union in preparation for this strike. Jacobin Radio spoke with Jackie Goldberg in two parts about the problem with charter schools. The Dig interviewed labor journalist Sarah Jaffe about the intersectionality of movements coming together in the teachers' strike. Past Present took a historical view on the resurgence of the union strike in general. Start Making Sense also spoke with Sarah Jaffe about the role of the Democratic Party in the education debate. And finally, we just heard Michael Brooks explaining that the teachers' strikes should be seen as reverberating far beyond the confines of public education. 
members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips with just a little more detail on what was behind the strike, what was won in the strike, and what all this says for the increasing likelihood of more strikes coming in the near future. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland. It's been a long time. I just wanted to call in because of all this craziness going on in the Virginia politics. We have three people all in trouble, one for sexual allegations and two for racial controversies. And these controversies are what I want to talk about. I am no, in no way condoning accepting people wearing blackface and things like that as acceptable. However, I think the left is kind of driving me a little nuts right now. We are supposed to believe in redemption. We give convicts a second chance. We also have to give people a chance to evolve. A lot of these things, like a med school yearbook and college, at this time, even though these people are technically adults, they're still jack-off college kids living off mom and dad's teeth who don't understand real responsibilities, so they have some stupid views. Myself, growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, I got news for you, Jay. During the 70s and even during the 80s when I was a kid, it was still very racially segregated. And where I lived, bordered a black neighborhood. As kids, groups of us would often fight simply because they were black, we were white, and both sides felt the same. We were young, we were indoctrinated by things from our parents, and we were ignorant. We have evolved. We've realized our parents' views were antiquated, ill-informed, and wrong. And I am in no way representative today of the Colin I was 40 years ago. So... I think we're making big mistakes having people throw their careers away because of something they've done when they were young, ill-informed, and ignorant. I think we have to give people that chance to grow. And I've already had discussions with people on the right who jump my case about, well, why are you giving Kavanaugh such a hard time? You know, because, you know, he, he was in college. And I want to be very clear. Sexual aggression is a far cry from an ignorant, racist joke. Not condoning either one, but I'm saying one is a hell of a lot more reprehensible than the other. I'm just, I'm getting very frustrated with the left because, Jay, I'm sorry. If we just keep persecuting everyone, we won't have a politician left in the country. Everyone has made mistakes. Everyone has evolved and changed views. We need to figure out how far back are we going to dig into someone's dory and figure out when the turning point is that we can stop holding them accountable. What about a person who let their slaves go? Are they a son of a bitch for owning slaves, or are they a hero for evolving and releasing their slaves from bondage? The discussions I have with some of the people on the left who I consider, you know, my colleagues, my counterparts, my compadres, absolutely infuriates me. Look at John Kasich, the former governor of Ohio. When he came in, he was attacking cops, attacking unions, 
Jay, at that time, if I thought I could have got away with it, I probably would have killed the man. But over the years, he is starting to evolve, not just on his work policies. He even refused to sign the early heartbeat bill here in Ohio. Even though he is a devout Christian, he has made it his case not to force his religious views into legislation and codify it into law. I don't love this man, but I can admit that he is evolving and becoming, right now, probably the most centrist Republican I could think of. Or should I just go back to when he personally attacked unions and still want to kill the man? This is a conversation we need to have on the left, because at this point, guys, if we're the only ones with morals and being too far of social justice warriors, what are we doing? The other side doesn't care. They're cleaning the clock, and it's making it a dangerous, dangerous, toxic environment where we're trying to hold ourselves accountable to such a crazy degree. The other side is just steamrolling us back into the Middle Ages. Anyway, just my thoughts and my frustrations. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First quick response to Colin's message, not so much a response, but a, 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 a an invitation for more people to comment on this topic. I, I would like to do a show on it. Uh, in the near future, and I'd love more input. Uh, I think it is a topic that, I mean, Colin's frustration to interpret it is uh, that we're not including enough nuance and that we're not allowing, there's not, it's like there's not an exit strategy. We know how to criticize and we know how to condemn, but if we are really in favor of things like restorative justice, from the schoolyard to the prison yard, then we need to have a way in civil society to also allow people to grow. Now, I'm certainly open to the argument that public office is a very different thing than society as a whole. And, you know, if someone dresses up in blackface 20, 30 years ago, it doesn't mean they need to be like ostracized from society for the rest of their lives necessarily, but maybe it does mean, okay, fine. You can continue to like be a human in our society, but you can't run the state. <laughs> if, if that's your argument, I'm, I'm totally sympathetic to that, but uh, you know, to a large degree, I, I'm open to Colin's message because uh, not because I want things to be complicated, not because I, I want to create nuance and like squishy middle ground gray areas, but because that just is how things work. Humans just are complicated. So to pretend that they're not uh, creates really untenable situations. And what, what this reminds me of is, uh, and you know, I've mentioned this every once in a while recently, the the evolution of call out culture and how that eventually uh, sort of transformed into call in culture at least in, in in some ways and so to just quickly maybe oversimplify but call out culture is is what comes out of a situation where there's not a good way to get 
justice. When, when someone has done something that really affronts the community that they are a part of, whether it be uh, just a small community of people in a small town or you know, a politician at the national level. So you, uh, you know, if, if there's not a good way to get justice based on some, uh, you know, something someone has done that offends the community, call out culture is basically the idea of taking justice into your own hands, uh, calling out bad behavior, ostracizing a person, uh, ejecting them from the community, that sort of thing. And, and this is what Colin is referring to sort of, I mean, it's not a perfect parallel, but there, there are shades of it in, in both of these. And, uh, when you do that, it, there, there's not a mechanism to bring someone back in. If they evolve, if they grow, if they become a different person than the one who deserved to be ostracized, what's the mechanism to accept that apology or to, to you know, accept their penance, whatever they've done, or, or if they've just really become a better person and they're fighting on the side of righteousness again, how do they then reintegrate? And so call out culture didn't really have good mechanisms for that. And especially if that call out happens on the internet and things live forever on the internet, that can follow a person forever. And so call in culture was the sort of natural response. It was the recognition that although call outs are necessary and functional and can have a, a real use to bring progress, to bring justice, that sort of thing, that call in culture means that you, uh, even while correcting someone, explaining that what they have done or are doing is damaging to the community, you can simultaneously call them in. And it, that would be the first step of a, like a restorative justice model of asking for penance, asking for uh, apologies, but opening a space for that person to be brought along and, and, uh, you know, in included in that progress to really give them a chance to evolve. So I, I see what Colin's saying is sort of along those lines. And I, I've really appreciated that evolution of, of the, the transition from where call out culture was rampant and that's all anyone knew to this new, more nuanced sort of thoughtful way of going about it. So if, if you have thoughts on, any or all of those things, the ability for people to grow, the need for penance and apologies, what makes a good apology, are there some things that are done that are just unforgivable, does a person's position dramatically change how people react? Like, maybe we could forgive someone who, for instance, dressed up in blackface, but forgiving them doesn't mean the same as letting them continue to be the governor of a state. So uh, if, if you have any thoughts on any of the whole variant of, of gray area in, in the middle there, I would love to hear it. And then just one last thing today. I have a quick announcement, because which shouldn't even be an announcement because I should have said this a long time ago, but I didn't know that I could. So quick little backstory. You've probably been hearing me say for weeks now that... I post a weekly poll on Patreon that allows 
supporters of the show to have a hand in guiding what topics are covered on the show. And it's been a great success. It's a great conversation. It's not just voting takes place, but then also there's, you know, a comment section where whole conversations can happen and, and people really get to give their input. And, and several episode topics have come directly from those conversations. The, the most recent is, I, I think, the definitions of freedom debate, the FDR freedom versus libertarian freedom. That was a topic suggestion by a listener who wrote in the comments of the weekly poll. So that's been going on for a while, but the reason it exists is in part because Patreon offers a cool little polling tool. So that just is where it is. You know, I didn't have the idea to run a poll and then figured out a way to do it. I saw that there was a way to do it and then decided to use that option. And since I thought, well, okay, it's on Patreon and the only way people can use it is if they're paying supporters, I just said, okay, I guess it's part of the paid patron benefit package. So I put it at the low level, you know, for two bucks a month. Uh, you know, you get access to those polls. And uh, pretty soon after I implemented that, I got a message saying like, well, you know, it's fine, but it is sort of ironic for a progressive, pro-democracy, anti-voter suppression podcast to literally implement a poll tax on their weekly poll. Like, just saying. And I saw that and I thought, no, that is ironic. I totally, like, I embrace the irony. It is what it is. Luckily, my little weekly poll to help guide the show isn't critical to the future of democracy in America. But I recognize the irony. And, you know, I don't like it. And if if it creates a, a situation where there's like a class divide involved in the choosing of future topics for the show. I don't love that. I've never loved it, but I just thought, well, it just is what it is. And here's the thing. I just didn't realize that Patreon actually allows people to follow creators on Patreon without paying. I just didn't know that was a feature until about two days ago. So as soon as I saw that, I realized, oh, wait, that's great. I should just encourage people to follow the show on Patreon, whether they want to pay or not, doesn't matter, because I would love as many people as possible to take part in that weekly poll. It's been really good, not just to help guide decision-making based on topics I might have chosen on my own anyway, but there have been really good suggestions that have come in that I wouldn't have known about, or, or I wouldn't have thought to put so much weight on them. And here's the thing. I'm a straight white guy. I can't change who I am, but I can implement policies that help institutionally diversify the thinking of the show. And so I'm really excited that I can open up this poll to everyone because I want as many people, especially if you don't look like me, to get involved and have your voice heard, not just by voting, but each week leaving comments about topics that I might not know exist for a whole variety of reasons. There are stories and topics that I'm just not going to know about. And so that, that's my pitch. Uh, everyone 
no matter whether you have any interest whatsoever in ever donating to the show, I encourage you to go to patreon.com slash best of the left, and you can just click a little follow button. No money is involved. You do have to have a Patreon account that costs nothing, uh, and uh, so then you can follow the show. You can get our public post, which will be uh, going forward now, all of our uh, weekly polls that come out each weekend. And I would, yeah, I would just love to hear from as many people as possible what the show should be focusing on. And I, I think that it's been a great success of an experiment so far, and it will only get better with more people being involved going forward. So I'm very excited about that particular evolution of, of that aspect of the show. I hope you are too. And I hope you'll get involved. As always, if you have thoughts on any of this or, or anything else, you can keep the voicemails coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.